There's a saying in law that hard cases make bad law. And what that means is that there'll be cases in which judges will sometimes do what they think is right in a particular case, but in doing that, they will muck up the law. Imagine this, you go to enrol your child in the local state school and you're told by the principal, it's not a good idea that they join the school, your kid specifically. If you do manage to get them into school, you find they're not getting the same education as everyone else. There's a basic support your child should be getting, but they're unable to get it. This sounds a little unfair, right? Now multiply this on a state and national scale. These are the findings of a 2018 Monash University study from the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law and the Faculty of Arts. It uncovered widespread discrimination and exclusion against children throughout the state of Victoria at government schools. Numerous inquiries have found the same thing around the country. There's something about your child that means the school is either unwilling or unable, or maybe both, to accommodate them. Governments around the country are tasked with the responsibility of fixing this. But there's another institution in our society that has a major role to play in helping and protecting your child. The courts. There's a leading court case that dictates how the courts play this role. And our guest this week argues that this case, which judges around Australia are obliged to follow, is seriously flawed. We're going to rewind to 1997 and zoom to Grafton, in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. The case of 12-year-old Daniel Hogan shows the difficulty that mainstream schools have to accommodate students with disabilities, and the resulting court case shows the difficulty of the law to do so too. Dr Colin Campbell is a senior lecturer at Monash Law. Hi, Colin. Hello, both of you. Thanks for coming on Just Cases today. First off, we're going to hear about the facts of this case in just a moment, but we need to get our heads around a few things first, don't we? So what is direct discrimination? So there are two main forms of discrimination prohibited by Australian law. One's called direct discrimination and the other, perhaps unsurprisingly, is indirect discrimination. And in order to explain um, the case pertaining to Daniel Hogan, which was called Purvis because Purvis was the name of the person representing him and suing the government. Um, I, I'm going to first, I, I first need to explain the notion of direct discrimination to you, or as it's called in the United States, adverse impact discrimination. On that note, I'm actually very glad that you are taking the initiative to stop and explain the background of very difficult legal concepts, um, because back by popular demand on this show is a little red button that I hit whenever things get a little bit too lawry. Um, so if ever there's any point where we need to stop and take a moment and, uh, and get you to re-explain something, you're going to hear this ridiculous tune. So you get the idea of sort of the, the general quality of this podcast. <laughs> All right. Okay. So direct and indirect discrimination. So... Direct discrimination occurs when a person accused of discrimination treats the complainant less favourably because of the complainant's possession of what's called a protected attribute, like, say, sex or race or disability, 
then the person accused of discrimination treats or would have treated someone without the protected attribute, but who is otherwise in the same circumstances as the complainant. And that person, in respect of whose treatment the complainant's uh, treatment is compared, is called the comparator. So you sort of you have person A, who's the person who's got the special attribute, yep. and you've got person B, who's just like that person, except without that attribute. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, so uh, the comparator, as you say, has two crucial features. Firstly, the comparator can't have the complainant's protected attribute, because the whole point of the comparison exercise is to see how the alleged discriminator treated the complainant who has the protected attribute, so they're female or they're, or they're disabled or they're elderly, compared with how he would have treated someone, did or would have treated someone, without the protected attribute. So did he treat the complainant who has the protected attribute less favourably than he treated or would have treated the comparator who doesn't have the protected attribute? So this is a, but, but but then secondly, other than the possession of the complainant's protected attribute, the comparator must be in exactly the same circumstances or as close as possible to the same circumstances as the complainant. So we're comparing the alleged discriminator's treatment of like with like. So this is this is discrimination one hundred and one, right? Absolutely. And this sort of. We would call this a test, right? That that you yeah. use this test in yeah. every case. That's right. There's another form of discrimination called indirect discrimination, but that needn't concern us us here. So, is it helpful if I just give you uh, an example of a straightforward case of Absolutely. direct discrimination? So, um, imagine there's a woman employed by a company. She's got a number of male colleagues. Um, she works just as hard as they do and achieves results that are just as good. Um, but, uh, imagine, uh, unfortunately it doesn't require too much imagination, but imagine that she's paid half as much as her male colleagues or two thirds as much. Is there direct discrimination there? Yes, there is. So, so who's the comparator there? Uh, we know that the comparator by nef- definition doesn't have the protected attribute. So unlike the female complainant, the comparator is probably male. But otherwise, the comparator is in the same circumstances as the complainant. So the comparator is a male employee of the company who works um, as hard as our complainant does, no harder, Mm. and who achieves the same results as our complainant does. Results that are are no better. So the the, the female employee is paid two-thirds of as much as is the uh, male employee, notwithstanding that she does just as good a job and works just as hard. So so was she treated less favourably than the male comparator um, was or would have been treated? And yes, she was, because we know that she was paid only half as much money as the male comparator um, was paid. Because in the example I gave you, there are actual male comparators. Um, and because the comparator is in the same circumstances as the complainant, there's, there's a reasonable inference that um, the less favourable treatment was accorded to the complainant 
because of her sex. So, so I so rudely interrupted you before, but <laughs> should we now turn? <laughs> Let's. I think you should be the host. I agree. Yeah, I'm well, done. Sorry. I'm out. <laughs> You've explained things so methodically that um, so, yeah. I think I think we're not needed. Yeah, let's oh, go. go. I think you're essential, and, and, and listening to me just talking is, is uh, rather unedifying. I find it quite edifying. So, Colin, tell us about. Should we come to purpose yeah, itself? Yeah, t- tell us about the case and particularly the person involved. Yeah. So, purpose didn't involve discrimination on the basis of sex, but rather on the basis of disability. Um, And as we'll see, the High Court's decision in in Purvis went a long way to eviscerating or disemboweling direct discrimination provisions under Commonwealth legislation. That's such a good word. At Thank least so with regard much. to disability. Thanks for using that word on oh, the show. How often do the people say disemboweling on, on this show? <laughs> well, on this show, it, it's quite common. But oh, okay. Putting that aside. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so, so who is Daniel in, Hocken? In Purvis, a claim in direct discrimination was brought on behalf of an intellectually disabled 12-year-old, uh, Daniel Hogan. Um, his disabilities, and this is very important, manifested themselves from time to time in aggressive behaviour, such as hitting or kicking. He entered uh, year seven at South Grafton High School, and over the ensuing months, he was suspended five times for hitting and kicking other students and staff members. And eventually he was expelled. And his legal guardian brought an action under the Disability Discrimination Act claiming that in being expelled, um, he w- he'd been treated less favourably because of his disability than someone would have been treated who wasn't disabled. And was, was Daniel's behaviour the result of just being a, a bad Sort or was that behaviour actually a direct no, it, result no, of the medical? Yeah, it, it wasn't as a result of had. it wasn't a result of simply being bad. Yeah. It was as a result of it was uncontested that it was as a result of his disability. I believe there was um, a medical expert who gave evidence at the original hearing uh, at the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission, who said that Daniel's intellectual disability behaviour he had visual difficulties and epilepsy, it all came from this one brain injury that he suffered as a child, as a a seven-month-old, I believe. That's right. So it all came because of his disability. Now, the school, of course, tried to defend itself um, against the claim. And in defending itself, the school made a couple of arguments. Um, The school argued, first of all, that any less favourable treatment any adverse treatment that was accorded to Daniel um, was accorded not because of Daniel's disability, but rather because of the manifestations of the disability, which the school argued was a different thing. And the court, to its credit, rejected that argument, rejected that argument, saying that for the purposes of ascertaining whether treatment um, was accorded because of a person's disability, the manifestations of the disability count as a disability. However, the school had another argument relating to the disability and its manifestations, which the court accepted. So can I tell you what, what that argument was? Please. Yeah. Well, sorry, first of all... 
awesome, awesome. That will be ringing in my head for the remainder of the day. <laughs> I dream about that sound. Isn't it beautiful? Uh, manifestations of the disability. So w- can you take me through what precisely that means? How, how you can kind of distinguish also, between the disability and its manifestations? Well, well quite, one may well ask. Um, in this case, the manifestations of the disability were, were Daniel's violent behaviour. And again, the court, to its credit, although as we'll see, it soon loses its credit, but, but to its credit here, at least for the purposes of the argument that he wasn't expelled because of his disability, the court said you can't distinguish between the disability on the one hand and its manifestations on the other. For the purposes of whether the adverse treatment was accorded because of the disability, you can't distinguish between those two things. Okay. Which seems Logical. the right position to me. Totally. Um, but the second, the second argument? Yeah. So the court was more receptive to another argument made by the school. And so let me explain what that argument was. Um, so in order for a claim of direct discrimination under Section 5.1 of the Commonwealth Disability Discrimination Act to be made out, it must be the case that the discriminator treats or proposes to treat the aggrieved person less favourably than the alleged discriminator would treat a person without the disability, but in circumstances that, that are the same or not materially different from those of um, the complainant. So the same formulation as I provided to you before. So the majority in Purvis said that in making that assessment for the purposes of the Disability Discrimination Act, the manifestation of the complainant's disability must be regarded as part of his circumstances or part of her circumstances to be attributed to the comparator. So on the one hand, for the purposes of causation, the court's saying, no, no, you can't cleave between, on the one hand, the disability and on the other hand, the manifestations of the disability. But then then the court says, in a way which doesn't fit comfortably with what I've just said, that, that for the purposes of constructing the comparator, we can distinguish between, on the one hand, the disability and, on the other hand, the manifestations of the disability. And the manifestations of the disability should be regarded as uh, part of the circumstances of the complainant's case, which are attributed to the comparator. So are you saying that when I look at the treatment of child A and compare it to the treatment of child B, I look at, I can look at child A and say, child A manifests certain violent or aggressive behaviour and that's an incident or, or caused by the disability that, they, that they're dealing with. When, and I'm going to compare the treatment that child A got with the treatment that we would give, we would give to child B, our comparator, yep. if child B was a violent, violently behaving child. That's well. exactly so right. So we, we're but, but, comparing to... But, but crucially in circumstances where child A is with disability yes. and um, the violent behaviour occurs as a result of the disability, 
and child B, by definition, can't have a disability, can't have a disability, yeah. because the whole point about the comparator is that the comparator can't, can't have, have the protected attribute, yes. can't but have can the disability. Have the but according to the court in Purvis, can have the behaviour. And so the question... Well, that's always going to bring you to a no discrimination of, 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 answer of then, Of course it? it will. So, So the question therefore becomes whether the alleged discriminator treated the complainant who has a disability less favourably than he would have treated someone without a disability, but with all of the manifestations of the, difficult, of the disability, all of the aspects of the disability mm. that make it difficult, difficult to deal with. So all the aspects of a disability that make it a disability. Yeah, that's, right. that, that's, that's precisely right. Um, and so in this case, the question became, did the school, in expelling Daniel Hogan, treat him less favourably than it would have treated someone who wasn't disabled was violent. And and what do we think the answer was? I mean, unsurprisingly, there was no less favourable treatment because just as the school expelled Daniel Hogan, whose disability manifested in violent actions, the school would have expelled a student who wasn't disabled and who was similarly, similarly violent. Indeed, if anything, the comparator has all of the difficult aspects of the complainant, but doesn't even have the excuse of being disabled. Mm. So if anything, the comparator is going to be expelled more readily, maybe not after several suspensions, but maybe immediately. But the, yeah, the, so the problem and, and is so, the way they've constructed yeah, it is you'll absolutely. never have a finding of discrimination yes, against absolutely. the alleged discriminator. And, and exactly... And you can have some sympathy. I th you have a bit of sympathy for the High Court because if you look at it from the point of view of, say, the school principal, he was in, he was in a bad situation. But there's, there's a saying in law that hard cases make bad law. And what that means is that there'll be cases in which judges will sometimes do what they think is right in a particular case. Here, what they thought was right was protecting the school. But but in doing that, they will muck up the law. And I think pretty unequivocally, that's what happened in Purvis. You're listening to Just Cases. Today, a court case that has set unreachable standards for anyone wanting to bring a disability discrimination claim. We're going to learn about the impact this case has had on the ability of our law to promote equal access to things such as education and employment. And to our listeners who use Apple Podcasts, if you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a moment and leave a short review of Just Cases on the app. If you're time poor, we also do love a five-star rating, don't we, Melissa? We love a five-star rating. And how long does it take? Oh, just a moment. Yes, I'd say half a moment even. Leaving a review or giving us a rating, um, it really helps push us up the charts on Apple Podcasts. And, um, and thanks for, to a flurry of ratings that we had a couple of weeks ago, Just Cases jumped up to crack the top 20 Australian education podcasts. So Ooh. thank you. Yeah. All right. We'd love to make this a regular thing. So it means that we get in front of more and more people so we can keep on telling more of these weird and wonderful court stories. So thank you for your reviews. 
it's very tempting to to hear terms such as comparator, protected attribute. It's, it's very technical. And for the people who don't have a legal background, it can be a bit intimidating to hear such technical terms. Um, but this is not an abstract kind of purely academic pursuit. What has happened in this decision in Purvis has had a really profound impact yes. on future cases, hasn't and it? So there have been many, there, there are almost no cases decided under the Disability Discrimination Act, where claims are made of direct discrimination post-purpose, that have been successful. And and of those that have failed, the I mean, some of them fail for reasons unrelated to purpose. So the complainant can't show they were treated as they were treated because of their disability. There's some other sort of justification that the respondent has provided. But the substantial bulk of cases post-purpose that have been in where under the Disability Discrimination Act, where a claims made of for direct discrimination that have been unsuccessful, have been unsuccessful because the the Federal Magistrates Court is following the logic such as it is of Purvis. And there have been a few cases decided under the Disability Discrimination Act post-Purvis where a claim was made of direct discrimination that have been successful, but in most of those cases, um, the judges have either ignored Purvis, which they're not meant to do, or they've misapplied Purvis. Either, either. I mean, one presumes You're saying they found a, found a workaround? No, they didn't find a workaround. No. They just... Well, cocked it up. They misapplied it. They misapplied it in, in a way that is obvious. It's been misapplied. A case where an application was made um, in direct discrimination under the DDA that was successful, but where the Federal Magistrates Court misapplied Purvis, um, is a case called Maxworthy and Shaw. In that case. The complainant claimed that she had been discriminated against in various ways by her employer as a result of the fact that she suffered from Crohn's disease and was required to carry a colostomy bag. The magistrate who heard the matter uh, paraphrased the relevant portion of Purvis and outlined the characteristics of the appropriate comparator. He stated correctly, in accordance with the majority approach in Purvis, that the comparator didn't have Crohn's disease, and maybe she can't because she can't have the disability, but nonetheless carried a colostomy bag. Now, even the fact that Purvis requires that sort of bizarre, contrived comparison is is says something about Purvis, doesn't it? But but that's what the logic of Purvis requires. There's a, a genuine sense in which the complainant's colostomy bag, pursuant to what Purvis says, is is part of the one of the manifestations of her disability. So it has to be attributed to the comparator. So so the judge recognizes, as he is obliged to do, that the comparator doesn't have Crohn's disease, but does walk around with a colostomy bag. For fun. As you do. 
However, the, the federal magistrate then concluded that the, the complainant had been discriminated against, contrary to Section 5, because she received the treatment of which she complained as a result of carrying a colostomy bag, uh, to which the respondent had referred in um, de deprecating terms. Now, we can only applaud the outcome in that case, but, but the decision is, is not following, it's not following purpose. This, is, this gets to an issue that was brought up by Luke Beck in our episode that we did about funding of religious schools, mm. where we spoke about reasoning and the importance mm. of reasoning. Mm. And he likened it to, for people who don't have a legal background, mm. he likened it to doing maths, you do all the wrong working, um, your logic is completely flawed, but you fluke the answer. Mm. So hearing you talk about the correct decision, so I should say applying the logic of purpose correctly, you're actually saying they're doing the correct workings like you would in a maths problem, and it can come to a, a really unjust or absurd outcome. But in this in this circumstance of this case that you're talking about, they did the opposite. They they actually incorrectly applied purpose, shoddy working, but came to kind of a fluke of a decision, which is a just outcome for this person who was discriminated Yeah, they against. certainly came to a just outcome and, and, and an outcome that we would applaud on the merits. But the working by which they get to the outcome involves them not, not following purpose. But this precedent's now 20 years old, and it clearly the... The interpretation doesn't feel like it meets what the purpose of that act, that Disability Discrimination Act, is for. Like, the act is in order to ameliorate the effects of direct discrimination, and yet the way the High Court's interpreted, it actually doesn't fulfil the, the mission that the act should be doing. Isn't it time for that act to be reformed? Yes. Interestingly, interestingly, it's possible that the problems posed for the operation of direct discrimination under the Disability Discrimination Act by purpose have been cured by legislation. Although ultimately, and, and despite what I wish was the case, I, I, I don't in good faith think that's so. In 2009, so quite a while ago now, but in 2009, the Commonwealth Government made various amendments to the Disability Discrimination Act. One amendment was the inclusion of the following words in Section 4 of the Act. Um, those words are, and I'll quote them, to avoid doubt, a disability that is otherwise covered by this definition includes behaviour that is a symptom or manifestation of the disability. Now, the words to avoid doubt, which preface the words, suggest that an already existing position is being confirmed um, rather than that a position is being changed. Is that is that strange to have that wording in legislation, to avoid doubt? Yes, quite. And, and that, that makes me... To avoid doubt suggests, I think, that, a, that, that an existing position is being confirmed rather than a position is being, being changed. Um, although, look, the position might have been changed by Section 4... But there aren't really enough cases that have come up. Purpose had an immensely chilling effect, and there just aren't enough cases to know what Section 4 has actually done. So as we mentioned at the start of this episode, there was a, 
a report by the Kasten Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash in 2018 that looked at the difficulties that Victorian school students have who have disabilities in accessing their education at state government schools. Daniel Hogan, when he moved from primary school to secondary school, faced all sorts of barriers from the secondary school to actually being enrolled in that school. It seems to have gone on for a long period of time that there was a back and forth between his family and the school about whether the school could actually accommodate him. This is an ongoing issue. I mean, that happened 20 years ago, and this is still an ongoing issue today. Are our state government schools able to accommodate students with disabilities? And the question for you is, is our law able to do so? So I think our law can really help here, but I think a lot needs to be done to make the law better. So first of all, just following on from what I've been talking about, I think um, there should be legislation making it absolutely clear that for the purposes of direct discrimination under the Disability Discrimination Act, the uh, manifestations of a person's disability are part of that disability for the purposes of the comparator exercise and aren't to be attributed to the comparator. So contrary to what Purvis said and what Purvis required to be done. Secondly, there's a requirement, a relatively recent requirement in the Disability Discrimination Act requiring that in, in some circumstances that that schools and employers and so on make what's called reasonable accommodations for people with disability. They're meant to do things to, to help or to facilitate the people's performance of their job or attendance at school or, or whatever. Uh, those provisions in the Disability Discrimination Act are quite badly drafted and they've been interpreted in a case called Sklavos in a very, very narrow way. So uh, I think those provisions need to be amended. And there's something of a push for that to be done. Finally, under almost every discrimination enactment in Australia, if someone who brings a claim of discrimination before they get to court, they're required to go through a conciliation process. Now, there certainly are advantages to a conciliation process, but there are significant disadvantages as well, a, a compulsory conciliation process. One disadvantage is that such a process can be, can be very, very lengthy, and that's particularly significant if the applicant is, say, a school child, and, and particularly, a, say, a primary school child. If you have a, a concern with how your primary school child with disability is being treated by the school and you go through a conciliation process that is, it takes some time for it to get started, the process is lengthy and then ultimately it's unsuccessful, that passing of time is, is very significant because, for instance, it's not at all impossible that by the time the unsuccessful compulsory conciliation process has finished, that the, the child will have finished their primary schooling or, or at least will be coming near the end of it. So, so the availability 
or the, the, the theoretical availability of, of the court will be rendered nugatory because you're no longer, the child will no longer or, so, or will soon no longer be at the school. And so I, I think that the requirement to go through compulsory conciliation prior to bringing a claim in discrimination before the court should be removed. Colin Campbell, thanks for a very interesting episode of Just Cases. Entirely my pleasure. That was Dr Colin Campbell from Monash Law. We'll put a link to the case in the show notes for this episode, as well as the Caston Centre's report into discrimination at Victorian government schools. Head over to justcasespodcast.com. And we're very excited to announce the winner of our One Question Survey competition. Uh, Thanks to everyone who answered the survey. Your answers have really helped us get an idea of the sorts of cases you like, also what you don't like, and what you want to hear more of. And the winner is Nicole Horner. You've scored yourself a $50 Amazon gift card and we'll be in touch with you shortly via email. We love hearing your story suggestions and feedback on the show. Get in touch on Twitter and check out the show notes at justcasespodcast.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye.